0: All right. Well, you know what we're going to do? We're actually going to finish something today. You know, for the last three months, we have been uh, going through a series that is uh, been all pointing, I guess, to what we're going to talk about today, which is actual contemplative practice and uh, what a program can look like. And uh, even though I'm saying we're officially ending uh, the the series, uh, it doesn't mean we're not going to keep talking about it, because that's what we're about here, is contemplative practice. And so it's always going to be coming up, but I wanted to kind of tie this one off, and then we'll, we'll start on some new uh, themes and subjects and topics uh, next Sunday. So we've been talking about contemplative practice, but the truth of the matter is, is that... The largest aspects of contemplative practice can't be talked about. Uh, There is just no way to do that. Uh, You can talk about it, but it's not going to mean anything until something actually happens. I wanted to read just a quick story, and it's it's in your handouts um, from the tradition of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And uh, this is there are just so many wonderful stories. If you can. Get a chance to just get a collection of the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers. Uh, It is well worth your time. They're all short like this one, usually a paragraph, maybe a page. But the wisdom that they contain and the sense of humor and the way that it is conveyed is just unmatched. But at any rate, a hermit from the monastery of Skidi went to Abbot Theodore. And he says, I know precisely the objective of life. I know what God asks of man, and I know the best way of serving him. Even so, I am incapable of doing everything I should in order to serve the Lord. Abbot Theodore remained silent for a time. Finally, he said, You know that there is a city on the far side of the ocean, but you haven't yet found the ship, nor have you loaded your bags, nor crossed the sea. Why spend time commenting on what it is like or how sh- sh- one should walk through its streets Knowing the objective of life or recognizing the best way of serving the Lord is not enough. Put into practice that which you think, and the way will be revealed all by itself. That's it. Right there, a little tiny story. But that nugget says so much. Everything we think we know about God Everything we think we know about spirituality or the objective of life or anything else that we may think that we understand and have studied maybe for decades, have vast charts and schematics and all of that. It's kind of like basic training before the first bullet whizzes past your head. It's kind of like spending all day on the ground learning about skydiving before you actually jump out of the plane. It's like all the baby books you read before your first child gets sick as an infant. All the preparation in the world is not going to make up for the actual experience of doing anything that is connected to life, anything that is really connected to living life that is physical, that is relational. The map is not the territory. And there is no substitute for walking the territory. We have to walk the territory. And the first followers of Jesus profoundly understood this. <clears throat> they called themselves in Aramaic, Urha," which literally means followers of the way. And I know I've made this point so often that you probably are going to be internally rolling your eyes. Let's see if you're going to roll your eyes for real here. Yeah. But they called themselves followers of the way, not even followers of Jesus, followers of the way. And this is such a significant thing to consider because they understood that in order to know and know in the true sense, in the Hebraic sense, intimate experience, to know from intimate experience, not just mental conception, to know, to believe, which has never separated from trust in the ancient languages. To be able to know, to be able to trust as Jesus did, or to be able to know and trust in Jesus himself, you had to do what Jesus did. You couldn't follow on. You couldn't passively just kind of get it by osmosis. You had to do what Jesus did. And this is Jesus' message. It may sound heretical that we can do what Jesus did. Well, he told us that. Unless you do what I do then you can't know the truth that's going to make you free. People are going to know that you're my followers by your love, not by your conception of things. It's by your love. And unless you pick up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow me, then you're really not my followers. He's telling them over and over again. And then he says at John 14, these things you see me do, you will do, and greater things than these. It's all there. We gloss over it and maybe because where we place Jesus theologically in our minds, we don't see ourselves as being able to do what Jesus did. This is John taking care of me, by the way, bringing me my tea. You can tell my voice is a little off today. Um, They understood this the first followers of jesus these in the first two generations after the crucifixion they understood jesus context because they lived his context they spoke his language they lived in the same area they understood what he said pick up my cross pick up your cross and deny yourself daily they understood what that meant because they had the same conception of the cross as he did not that we do we were crosses around our neck. I had a Jewish friend tell me, we would no more wear a cross around our neck than you would wear a, an electric chair around your neck. That's the way they saw the cross. It was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument of abject humiliation and a symbol of the oppression of the, of the Roman government. But they understood what he meant. He meant that denial of self. He meant that, that stripping away, that dying to self that maintenance of that vulnerability, all of that, they understood the context of what Jesus was saying, that the only way to the Father was to let ourselves diminish as he increases. Those beautiful words of John the Baptist, I must decrease as he increases, that was the whole crux of what this way was about. It was a way to decrease to step away from who we think we are so that the truth can actually infill us, the spirit can infill us. So those first followers understood, but only 40 years later, Jerusalem was gone. The temple was gone. Jews were, you know, outlawed from living in the area after the first Jewish-Roman war from 66 to 70. And so the Jewish-Christian sect was silenced from that point on. All of the sects of of Judaism were destroyed except for one, the Pharisees, who became rabbinical Judaism. Their understanding became what is now rabbinical Judaism. But that's the only thing that survived. And so as far as Christianity had spread up through the first Jewish Roman war at the end of the first century, the only thing that's continued were Gentile Christians, were Greek Christians, were Roman Christians, who were now finally called Christians. They weren't calling themselves followers of the way anymore. And they had a very different understanding because they were no longer in that Jewish context. Jesus' way now, under their care, became intellectualized. It became theologized. It, It became philosophized. We've often said in here that, that modern Christianity is much more heir to uh, Greek philosophy and Roman law than it is to Jesus' original Hebrew message. And that's what we're, of course, trying to turn around here at the effect. We want to go back to that original message. So the Gentile followers of Jesus, more and more, became a, it became about their, their way, became more about what you believed than how you lived. Now, obviously, it's not hard right and left. But institutionally, the church was all about the creed, was all about the theology. That defined and that also excluded others who didn't follow that orthodox theology. And then 200 years after that, approximately 200, 250 years, the church becomes aligned with Roman power. By the end of the fourth century, it is the state religion of Rome. And at this point, everything changes. All sense of Jesus' way is officially lost in the church as it becomes aligned with Roman power and all that that means. Now, that doesn't mean that the church could no longer help to guide people to Jesus. Many Christians in the church found their way, but it wasn't part of the institution anymore. It wasn't part of the face of Christianity anymore. And this was the moment that those desert fathers and mothers chose to leave their villages, to leave their towns, to leave their cities, and go out into the wilderness, into the deserts of Egypt and Judea and and Arabia to try to find out what is it that we've lost. This doesn't make any sense anymore. Thomas Burton says they saw their life, their society, their church as a shipwreck, and as long as they were flopping around in the in the debris field with everybody else, they were no good to anyone. They had to get their feet on solid ground so they could reach in and pull someone out. And their way of doing that was to flee, to go into the deserts and create what became the Christian monastic movement. But they felt they had to leave the church in order to re what Jesus' way was all about in the beginning. And the Desert spirituality that they developed there, which was a perfect mirror of Jesus' way, is called hesychasm. And I want to read just a couple of paragraph paragraphs from um, Henry Nowen's book called The Way of the Heart. And uh, we actually did this as one of our book studies uh, a while back. And if you haven't read it, it's a small book. It's an easy read. It would be great for you to take a look at because what he is laying out is what this hesychasm really is. What is hesychastic prayer? What is this way of the heart that four centuries after Jesus had to be so radically imposed on communities of people because the church had taken a left turn at Albuquerque, right? Anyway, he writes, when Abba Arsenius had asked for the second time, Lord, lead me to the way of salvation. The voice that spoke to him not only said, be silent, but also pray always. To pray always. This is the real purpose of the desert life. This is in the, in, in the handouts too, if you want to follow along. Solitude and silence can never be separated from the call to unceasing prayer. The desert fathers and mothers did not think of solitude as being alone, but as being alone with God. They did not think of silence as not speaking, but as listening to God. Solitude and silence are the context within which prayer is practiced. The literal translation of the words pray always is come to rest. Isn't that interesting? Come to rest. The Greek word for rest is Hezekiah, and hesychasm is the term which refers to the spirituality of the desert. A Hezekast is a man or a woman who seeks solitude and silence as the ways to unceasing prayer. The prayer of the Hezekast is a prayer of rest. This rest, however, has little to do with the absence of conflict or pain. It is a rest in God, in the midst of a very intense daily struggle. Hezekiah, the rest from which, the rest which flows from unceasing prayer needs to be sought at all costs. Even when the flesh is itchy, the world alluring and the demons noisy. Remember when Jesus said, "'I didn't come here to bring you peace, but the sword.'" And we think, what's he talking about? He's the Prince of Peace, right? Well, the Prince of Peace is Shalom. Shlama in Aramaic, when he uses the word, I didn't come to bring you peace, the word he's there, means, the word he uses there is a different word. And it means tranquility. It means calm. He didn't bring that because he knows that this way is going to create all sorts of disturbance, both internally and especially between the person who is trying to follow the way and the people closest to him or her. It just happens. And this is what he's saying here. This rest doesn't mean that it brings tranquility and calm, but it does bring a rest that is indescribable until you have experienced it. Most of us think prayer is primarily as an activity of the mind that involves above all else our intellectual capacities. This prejudice reduces prayer to speaking with God or thinking about God. Since speaking with God usually seems to be a quite one-sided affair, prayer simply means talking to God. Great frustrations. If I present a problem, I expect a solution. If I formulate a question, I expect an answer. If I ask for guidance, I expect a response. And when it seems increasingly that I am talking into the dark, It is not so strange that I soon begin to suspect that my dialogue with God is, in fact, a monologue. Then I may may begin to ask myself, to whom am I really speaking? God or myself? Thinking about God makes God into a subject that needs to be scrutinized or analyzed. Successful prayer is thus prayer that leads to new intellectual discoveries about God. Just as a psychologist studies a case and seeks to gain insight by trying to find coherence in all the available data, so someone who prays well should come to understand God better by thinking deeply about all that is known about him. But the crisis of our prayer life is that our minds may be filled with ideas of God while our hearts remain far from him. Real prayer comes from the heart It is about this prayer of the heart that the Desert Fathers teach us. See, Desert Spirituality was kind of going back to the future, (laughs) going back to the original way of Jesus that had been lost institutionally and by and large within Christianity by the third and fourth century. It was back to a life of prayer, but a prayer of silence and rest a prayer of pure identification with God, not a continual string of words or thoughts, but identification with God that permeated everything. This way that they had rediscovered was preparation for the interior transformation and how that transformation informed everything that they did and everything that they thought and every relationship that they had was transformed because of the transformation that they had experienced. Hezochastic prayer of the heart, as now one is talking about it, as it was understood by the Desert Fathers and Mothers, is what we mean by contemplative practice today. It is one and the same. So if you can understand that and where they're going, then you understand what contemplative practice is all about. It is the preparation for the life of a mystic and to demystify that mystic word it simply just means someone who is completely full of being presence connection with god with everyone nothing standing in the way kind of like we prayed in that that meditation during the worship set to remove everything that stands in the way to bring everything that will bring us closer to you, and then to detach me from myself, from the thoughts and the belief systems and everything else that keeps me apart, keeps me subject subject and object at arm's length from God. The contemplative way is geared in exactly that way. That's what we're trying to do. A mystic is someone who lives that life, intellect out of the way, pure being, presence and connection. A mystic is someone who is literally living the ultimate fulfillment of human purpose. What is our purpose? I can't say it any better than it's connection. It's a sense of unity and oneness with everyone and everything. And here's where Brene Brown is, is brilliant. And if you've seen the power of vulnerability that that short TED talk that she's that she's got had up for I don't know a decade now or something with I don't know how many tens of millions of views. If you haven't seen it, please, Power of Vulnerability, Brené Brown, and, and just take a look. But just to summarize what she's saying, in her 10 years before that of being a researcher, she's a social worker and a researcher, and she was trying to study, you know, what makes people happy? What makes people tick? You know, what's going on here? And she said basically of everyone she studied, they fell into two groups, those who were connected and had connected and fulfilling relationships and those who didn't. And she said, what was the dividing line between those two groups of people? And she said, it was shame. But her definition of shame is important. It is the fear of disconnection. That's how she defines shame. So the person who was fearing disconnection, fearing that people would not connect with them, were the ones who remained disconnected. But these other folks somehow had moved out of the catch-22, right? and had found connection. How did they do that? She said those people had the courage to be imperfect. They had the the courage to let their vulnerability show to others and then find out that they didn't run screaming from the room after all. They stayed in connection with them and proved to themselves that they were connectable. The ones who led connected lives, believed that they were worthy of connection. Simply that. And it was their vulnerability, their willingness to show their vulnerability that proved it to them in the process. We have to break through the shame, which means we have to break through the fear, right? Now, the Bible tells us the only thing that casts out fear is love. Perfect love casts out fear, right? So it's only the experience of that love, it's only the experience of the acceptance that is going to cast out the fear. And so we're into that catch-22, right? We can't break the shame until we experience the love, and we can't experience the love until we break through the shame. How do we do that? Well, she tells us. It's courage. What is courage? Courage is the ability to act in the presence of fear. It doesn't mean the fear is gone. It means you act anyway. Somehow these people were willing, or maybe they were lucky enough to grow up in a, in a home of origin that had that kind of, of, of connection with each other. And so they learned that they were worthy of connection as children. Beautiful, the way it's supposed to be, right? How many of us grew up in homes like that? So those of us who didn't have to find a way to be able to be courageous enough to act in the presence of our fear and the presence of our shame and let people see that we're not perfect and find out whether they will reject us or accept us or not. And some will reject us, but most won't. And that's how it works. That's how we get past the catch-22. We act as if we are connectable and then we find out that we are. And it's going to be exactly the same way with God. Only here with God, we're going to move from courage to faith because faith, just like courage, is the ability to act in the presence of doubt, in the presence of uncertainty. And so when we can do that, when we can act as if God already accepts us, we will find out that he does. Contemplative practice is a practice of living and acting as if God accepts us. Showing our vulnerability to God. Stepping away from all our defense mechanisms and everything that we built up in our minds and in our lives. And in that pure presence, that's where we find out what is really going on with God. So how do we do that? How are we going to pull this off? And there's two ways. There's a relational faith that we need to put into practice in our lives. And that is, we're acting as if we are relationally connected, that others actually do accept us and love us. And there are five essential elements, and I know I've talked about these here many times, but to reiterate and put all of this in one place, those five elements that everyone needs in their life to be able to have a balanced life, to be emotionally regulated, to be healthy enough to take the next steps that we're talking about in terms of spirituality, our community, accountability, structure, discipline, and service. Those five are absolutely essential. When someone comes to me because their life is out of balance and they're looking for counseling or looking for help, first thing I'm going to ask them is, what does your daily and weekly routine look like? And I'm going to find out that one or all of those five are missing. They've atrophied. They've been blown apart. Something has happened. And so it's a process of then rebuilding. This is a community. You all are part of this community. This community is structured, and by a structured community, it means it has to meet at least once a week, if not more times. If you belong to a community that meets once a month, that's not enough. That's not gonna be a structured community. It's not gonna do for you what you need. So you need a, a, a community that has a structure. They meet, they have formal meetings, and they do this and do that. They have dinner together, they wear funny hats. Whatever they do, but you're disciplined to that. You actually show up for those meetings. And you don't just show up and hang on the wall and check a box that you were there. You get connected with people. You come early and you talk and you get to know people and you get phone numbers and you stay late and you do the same so that by the time that you're really connected with them, if you miss a meeting, everybody notices and they're going to call you and ask you where you are or if you're okay. That's accountability. When you have become accountable to a community, guess what? You've got friends. You're not going to be that pastor who finds himself or herself so isolated that they're not going to end up retiring a pastor. That's what this is all about. And if you do that, if you are accountable to a community and disciplined to their structure, there is going to be no end to your opportunities for service. It doesn't have to be formal. You don't have to take a commitment. All you have to do is keep showing up. And you're going to find people who need something, even if it's just to sit for half an hour after the meeting and talk. But service closes the circuit. Service brings it all together again. This is that relational faith we're talking about, to step out even in the midst of your fears and rebuild communities. It doesn't have to be one community. It can be across many communities. Your work is a community if you treat it this way, if you're really there and accountable and connected and of service, as well as just being disciplined to the structure and the paycheck. It can be a church. It can be a school. It can be a family. It can be anything. It can be a chess club. And you may not get everything from every community, but across those communities, all five are present. Beautiful. But we need this. We need those elements. They're focused across all our human relationships, and it breaks down our shame as we find ourselves accepted, looked forward to in this community life, right? And the fear and the shame breaks down and it keeps us, importantly, spiritually grounded as well. It keeps our spirituality grounded, it keeps it relevant, it keeps it humble, it keeps us submitted, it keeps us loving and it keeps us serving. Absent this, connection this groundedness our spirituality can become really aloof it can become disconnected from human relationship and then it becomes just narcissistic and and worthless as pious as we may think we are as learned as we may think we are if we're not grounded in relation human relationships this way then our spirituality is serving nothing this is what jesus was trying to tell us it's not going to be your faith it's not going to be what you know about the law it's going to be your love that defines you as one of my followers the way that you treat each other in these five ways. That's what it's all about. When we've established that, in conjunction with establishing that, then there's our spiritual faith, acting as if we're connected spiritually as well as relation, relationally, which means we are stepping out to find out that God accepts us and loves us. And this is where contemplative practice comes in. Now we're going to take those five elements, community, accountability, structure, discipline, and service, and we're going to turn them inward. We're going to create a program for ourselves that is an interior community of us and God. Remember, solitude is being alone with God. That's our community. And we're going to be accountable to God in the same way. We're going to show up open and vulnerable. We're going to take time. We're going to create an actual structure to our program, whatever it is for ourselves, but we're going to be disciplined to it. All of that is part of the contemplative practice. Practicing presence, awareness and presence, beyond our thoughts, beyond our emotions, beyond the small self, that egoic self. It's going to expand out. And the contemplative practice and process is going to be a process of subtraction, Those four S's that we've been talking about, silence, solitude, stillness, and simplicity, are all agents of subtraction. We're taking something away, right? We're taking away the noise. We're taking away lots of bodies and and, and the distraction of others. We're taking away the activity. We're taking away the things so that we can decrease as he increases, so that we can become more and more aware of what really is in front of us without all these things. Remember that prayer, take away everything that keeps me from you. Stripping away our beliefs, our distractions, so we can see what is. This is contemplative practice. Now, just living life, life is going to do a lot of this for us. As Richard Rohr says, it's great love and great suffering that are the two paths toward the transformation that we're seeking here because love and suffering both have the power to strip away our illusions, strip away our distractions and to reveal real priorities as they should be and real values as they should be like nothing else really does in life. When you fall in love, everything just kind of falls away and when you get hit with a loss that is so traumatic for you, everything kind of falls away, doesn't it? And you are here and now, raw, seeing life as life really is. Contemplative practice is a way of living pointed intentionally at that kind of pure connection, that kind of raw reality, being able to see what is really in front of us, present, by subtracting, by simplifying our way to a truth that will set us free. What Jesus said was the only way to the Father, this only way of Jesus. This is what contemplative practice can do for us. Instead of having to wait for life to strip us, you know, or as we say in the program, hit bottom, bringing the bottom up to us, it's a kinder and gentler way of being able to get to that same place or use both of them, our program and life, meeting in the middle of this place of pureness and awareness and softening the blow of the traumas that we face in life at the same time because we've been practicing those little deaths. We've been practicing stepping away, picking up our cross daily. And there are tools that we can use in contemplative practice. And these tools are sets of activities and sets of practices that are all geared toward building awareness, all geared toward stripping away anything that obscures presence. And I like to categorize these in in two places. The first is offline. Offline is away from our regular daily activities of living, right, our ADLs. We're going to be away from that. So we're going to carve out time. And the goal of this offline carved out contemplative practice is to hit the place of choiceless awareness. And we talked about this a couple Sundays ago. It's being hyper-aware, but choosing not to focus on any one thought, sense, emotion, choicelessly, just being aware and present. That's going to be our goal, and everything that we're doing in this offline, carved-out time, this quiet time, is going to be geared toward that. Now, it doesn't have to be real formal. It can be informal. It can be time that you set aside. But remember, it's got to be structured and you need to be disciplined to the structure. So set something up. What is it? Three times a week, four times a week? Maybe you say, I'm never going to let more than one day go by that I don't at least have my 20 or 30 minutes in the morning. And maybe all I'm going to do is sit quietly with my cup of coffee, drink the coffee, but not think about the coffee. Watch the shadows move across the room early in the morning, but not think about the shadows, just let them move. Hear the dogs barking and the birds going and the fountain in the backyard, whatever is going on, but without thinking about it, and just allowing this time to be fully present. It can be just that. You can start with some devotional reading and then just let that fade off. You think about it for a while and let that fade off. It can be anything you want it to be, but the goal, again, is choiceless awareness. If you're doing what you're doing with that goal in mind, it is contemplative practice, and it's taking you toward where you want to go. Aware, but choosing not to think. Now, what is online? Online, then, is in the middle of your day. It's throughout your day. It's your online time. And now we're talking about mindful presence all day long. Now, presence, mindfully is the fruit of what you're doing offline. If you get really good at being able to move into choiceless awareness and hold yourself there, then when you get into the fray of the day, right, into all the distractions and the craziness and the pressure and the, the multitasking and everything you have to do, that you can come back to that mindfulness. You can come back to the only thought in your head is the task at hand, what you're actually doing, who you're actually talking to. And beyond that, you don't think about it at all. You just do what you do. It's like you're watching yourself do the task, but you don't even have to think thoughts about it. You're completely present. You're completely immersed. That would be the mindful presence. That, to the Desert Fathers and Mothers, is the continuous prayer. Aware of our connection, aware of the service, aware of what we're doing, but not thinking about it, not having anything inserted between us and the pure presence and God's presence unseen in the moment. That would be the mindful presence. That would be online. Now, I'm going to talk about three techniques, three activities that we can do in each of those, offline and online so that you kind of know the lay of the land. What is it that we're working with here? Well, when we talk about offline, but we're really talking about, of course, is meditation. We're talking about centering prayer. And I'm gonna add in contemplative journaling because I think that's a really useful tool. It worked well for me and I think it can work for you as well. So first of all, meditation. This is a bit of a sneaky one because a lot of people think that they meditate already uh, that I've talked to. And most people that I talk to that are meditating are using some sort of app on their phone. And there's nothing wrong with those. Those are good tools as well. But if you're using an app on your phone, then most likely you're either listening to music, environmental sounds, and usually a voice that is talking to you, either doing some guided imagery or doing affirmations or whatever it is you may program it to do or choose for it to do. But there's a voice talking to you. As long as we're listening actively to a voice, as long as we're listening to music or whatever, our minds are still active. We're still using our minds. That can bring our attention to a point. That's what we're trying to get away from. But maybe using the app is a good first foray into meditation, like training wheels on the bike, right? Boosters on the rocket, And you need those to get started, perfect, just go for it. But then understand that there are training wheels. And so in the app, at a certain point, when you've gotten really good at being able to sit for 20 or 30 minutes in that mode, turn off the voice, and you're just left with the music. Then turn off the music, and you're just left with the rain or the wind. And then turn that off, because your goal is to get to absolute silence. And maybe you need to just wean yourself off of those helps and get to that place. But see if you can do it. Where we want to end up is in that place of silence, because what we're trying to do is get to through choiceless awareness and awareness of our deeper self, awareness of God's presence behind that, and how the two are one. Now there are two ways that that uh, that we can, or there's one way that I want to talk about in terms of a technique for meditation is actually a Buddhist technique in uh, in the original language of Pali is called Anapanasati. Anapanasati means mindfulness of breath or mindful breath, if you will. It's going to be following the breath. And then built on top of that is called Vipassana, which literally means um, to see clearly or to see things as they really are. And so built on mindful breath is the ability as we get deeper into it to really be able to see things as they are because everything else is cleared out. So how do you do this type of meditation? Really simple. First of all, find a good place to sit. Do you need to be in a full lotus position? Absolutely not, unless you still have that kind of flexibility. You can if you want to. You can sit cross-legged, but you can just sit as you are right now. Feet flat on the floor, uncross things that are going to uh, you know, go to sleep. If you don't, you know, your back against the, the backrest, sitting straight up, your head balanced, You know, you don't want to lean back because anything that's going to cause you to go to sleep, you're going to lose it. You don't want to go to sleep. Your head balanced and just sitting comfortably, hands in your lap any way that feels comfortable to you. I mean, you can do this if you want to, but not necessary. And then after you have uh, got the posture, eyes closed, then take a cleansing breath. It's just a long breath, you know. Inhale to the count of four, hold to the count of four, exhale to the count of four. Repeat a couple of times. You can do a body scan if that helps you. Pretend there's a laser light that starts at the crown of your head and goes all the way down to the soles of your feet. And as the light moves down and to touch you, just relax. Relax your face. Relax your shoulders. Let them drop. So much tension is in the shoulders. And just relax all the way down. And when you are really just in a very grounded, seated position, then notice your breath. With your lips closed and you're breathing, as you inhale, it's gonna feel cool around your nostrils. And as you exhale, it's gonna be warm on your upper lip. And you just focus there, cool, warm, cool, warm. You notice the breath, however it is. If it's fast and shallow, notice it. If it's slow and deep, notice it, don't control it. Just let it be what it is, cool, warm. And every time you realize that your mind has grabbed onto a thought and is running away down the street with it, you're thinking about the laundry list again, you're wondering when lunch is going to be or what you're going to have for lunch or, you know, what about that tax form that I didn't fill? Cool, warm, just come back to the breath and just keep coming back. When you first start doing this, you're going to have to be doing that every 30 seconds. Don't get frustrated. If the frustration comes up, Cool, warm, cool, warm. Just keep coming back to breath. And that's it. The goal is to be able to do it 20 or 30 minutes. That's going to be an eternity at the beginning. So start with five, start with 10, whatever, and then slowly build it up. But whatever you say that you're going to do, whatever your structure is, write it down on a grid or a calendar or something and then actually show up and do it. You'll find you'll be getting better and better. Don't bring any expectations into the sit. You're not expecting some revelation from God. You're not expecting an answer to a question. That's not the point. If you come in with that, then you'll be thinking about that the entire time. And the whole point of this type of meditation and centering prayer that we're gonna talk about in a second is that you're not looking for any answers. You're looking to let go of your need for answers. You're looking to just be present with God's presence. And if there's anything in you that's saying doing a Hindu process is wrong or a Buddhist process is wrong, it's your intention that sanctifies these things. There's nothing in themselves. This is a physical process. But your presence makes it sacred and makes it spiritual. So just show up to it. The advantage of mindful breath is that your breath is constant and it's always there and you can stay focused on it and maybe that's easier for you. The disadvantage is is that it's always there. And this is where Centering Prayer comes in. Centering Prayer is a practice that was developed in the 70s by a couple of Trappist monks, Thomas Keating was one of them, to try to bring a modern uh, face to the ancient hesychastic prayer of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And so what they devised is everything is the same in terms of sitting and how you sit and your posture and the cleansing and all of that. But instead of following the breath, you're going to come up with a sacred word. A sacred word can be anything, you know, something that's not emotionally loaded to you that's going to create any kind of triggers, obviously, but just a word that even though it doesn't necessarily mean anything in and of itself. It is the symbol of your intention to move back into choiceless awareness. It could be anything. I remember um, Bill our Bill Felder's over here, when he started doing Centering Prayer, he would do it on hikes that he was taking, you know, out in uh, a hiking path or something. I remember telling me that he would sit on a bench kind of halfway through the hike, and if I'm getting the story wrong, you can get it right from him, but I'll tell it the way I want to tell it, you know. (laughs) He said halfway through, he'd sit on a bench, and one day he was just having the hardest time. He couldn't break through. His thoughts were, were crowded, and he kept saying his sacred word, and he opened his eyes kind of in frustration, and he saw a cactus. So cactus became his sacred word, and it worked just great, you know. It was part of the environment. It was organic, and it didn't have any kind of loading to it. It worked. Your sacred word can be anything. Here's how you do it. When you're ready, you're set, you're comfortable, you just gently say internally, silently to yourself, your sacred word. It's, it, it's not like you're forcing it. You just kind of lay it down. Thomas Keating says it's as if you're laying a feather down on absorbent cotton, just gently. And then my best analogy is, if you've ever sat by a still pool of water that has a film of dirt on it and you drop a small pebble in, as the rings expand, it clears that circle. That circle is completely clear as it moves the dirt out with the rings. And then slowly as you watch it, it closes back in again. So when you say your sacred word, it clears this space and you can just be in that space until it closes back in. And when you realize you're thinking again, you just say your sacred word gently again to yourself. clears the space. Now, in between, since it's intermittent, only you say the sacred word as you need to, you have this time that's completely alone with God. And it can be beautiful. And as you get further into it, these stretches can be long. And you're just there, just present, saying the sacred word only as needed. Again, The intent is choiceless awareness, to spend time in that space. Things will happen, but not during the sit. It's amazing how it works. Any revelations, anything that you get is going to happen during the day. Things will start to connect. Stuff will start to happen. But you can't predict it. And it's not going to happen on your time scale. Your job is simply to show up. Just keep showing up. Now, for a lot of people, just to be able to sit for ten minutes completely still, they're just way too ADD for that. That's not going to happen. Everything's going to itch, and yeah, everything's going to itch anyway. It's you're going to feel. It's like you're going through detox when you try to sit still for that long. And so, do a walking meditation. Nothing wrong with that. You can simply walk the perimeter of your room very slowly, just watching each foot, and then you go into the same kind of, whether it's vipassana or whether it's centering prayer, go into the same mode, but you have the body moving, which can help. You can walk the backyard. You can actually walk around the block, but make sure it's a time that's either early enough or late enough where there's not a lot of foot traffic and things you need to worry about, things that would distract you, and you can just follow the sidewalk around. You you can get on a stationary bike. You can get on a treadmill. You know, that just getting the body moving, but your goal is still the same, to achieve that choiceless awareness, that can work just fine as well. And then once you get good at that, maybe you can take those training wheels off and actually sit down and be able to just sit and be completely still. So those are two types of ways that you can work on meditation and choiceless awareness. Maybe coming out of that contemplative journaling can be great a lot of stuff will be welling up, but it's, it's staying below consciousness. Sit down with a piece of paper and it can all flow. That was always my way of doing it. Centering prayer and then journaling. But when you journal, you're not journaling like you normally write. You're not thinking about syntax and grammar. You're not thinking about editing. You're not thinking about anybody who's going to read it. All that's out your mind. You're going to do it as automatically as possible. You're going to put the pen or pencil down on the paper and just let it move. You're not going to even write with punctuation or write in complete sentences. Maybe it's just a word or a phrase. Maybe it's a doodle in the corner. Whatever occurs to you, just put it down. Be as disconnected from the process. As as possible. Try not to think about what you're doing. Just let it flow. And you'll be amazed at some of the things that will flow. But after you're done, just close it up and put it aside. Coming back and reading it later and reading in succession what you have written over time can be very revealing as well. But those are three ways, offline, carved out time, where you can really start to establish a contemplative bed and a way of honing those techniques so that you can bring them online, bring them into your day. Okay, what are the three for online? Well, the first one is going to be mindful presence that we were talking about. That is full immersion in the moment as we were talking about. The only thought we have is on the task and eventually there's no thought at all. We're just doing. And you say, well, how do you do that? You've all experienced it. You can call it flow. You can call it whatever. You do it when you're driving. You drive and you're not thinking about turning the wheel or turning on your blinker. Most people don't turn on the blinker anyway, you know. You're able, it is now such a part of your procedural memory, your muscle memory, that you can just do it. You do a lot of the task at work like that. But normally you do it like that while you're thinking about something else. Your mind has wandered off. Now you're gonna bring everything back to the moment and you're gonna be immersed and focused on the moment. You'll never be more productive. You'll never be more efficient. In your work as when you're working this way and you'll never be more available and attractive to others when you are mindfully present this way i mean this is everything to be able to go through the day this way will be the best you'll ever feel and the best you'll ever produce most of us don't do the day this way most of the time we're mind wandering we're thinking about something else so to be fully present and absorbed, and then every time you realize that your mind has wandered off, you use one of the techniques that you have used. You either come back to breath, you say your sacred word, and you come back and you focus. But maybe you need to go through a process to make sure that you're not being irresponsible because if a thought enters your mind, you can go through a little decision tree if you want to. Okay, this thing that has now invaded my space, invaded my presence, is this something that I can control? Nine times out of ten, you can't. If you know you can't control it, put it on the shelf, say your sacred word, and come back to the moment. If it's something that you can control, then the next question is, is there anything I can do about it now? Most of the time, the answer is no. You put it on the shelf, but maybe you make a note of it so that you can get to it later, right? And then you can let it go say your sacred word, come back to the space. If it's something you can control and you need to do something about it now, excuse yourself from where you are, go do it, come back, say your sacred word, come back to your space. So mindful presence during the day, the maintenance of it is, again, just as in your sit offline, when you realize your mind has wandered, you bring it back and keep coming back. Now, sometimes you're going to be hit with a, an emotional trigger that is so powerful. You know? Maybe it's residual. Maybe it's something that's actually happening in front of you. Someone slights you, insults you. Something happens and you feel that stab, and now you're in this emotional state. Well, that's pulled you out just as much as a thought will. There's something called the welcoming practice, which is a three-step mode for being able to come back into alignment again, come back to the present moment. And it's simply to, first of all, acknowledge that you've been triggered with an emotion. And you don't stuff it, you don't push it away, you don't say I shouldn't be feeling that, you acknowledge it and you lean into it and you sit with it and the second stage is to actually welcome it. Welcome anger, you're a part of me, but you don't own me. See the difference? And then the third is to say a sort prayer or an affirmation that allows you to move through it and come back to the moment again. And so this can, there's a, there's a formulaic one that that has to do with uh, the, the three major, or the, the six to the three pairs of major drives that each one of us had. I let go of my need for um, survival and security. I let go of my need for esteem and approval and affection. I let go of my need for power and control. I let go of my need to change the situation and just be within the situation. So if I can let go of all those things that are usually the triggers for the emotion at the beginning, and this is just a reminder to do that, now I can come back and let the emotion begin to subside. To welcoming practice during the day can be a very useful tool for coming back from powerful emotional triggers. A third thing that you can do are contemplative walks. But you can do this just as you're walking from office to office or building to building or, or driving where you drive. But as you walk, be very aware of everything that you see, but don't name it in your head. It's not a tree. It's not a sycamore. It's a wordless shape against a sky that is reflecting light, you know, and you're just noticing the shape, you're noticing everything, but you don't bring it to a thought in your head. Hyper aware of all the sensory input, but not thinking about the sensory input keeps you in that contemplative space. So these are three ways that we can stay immersed during the day, building upon the three ways that we can hone our ability to achieve choiceless awareness. It has to be part of a program that you build for yourself. Contemplative practice is not going to be a crash course. It's not going to be a crash diet. You know, It's not going to be a pill that you can take for a quick change or outcome. It's not like studying for a test where you can cram and then just take the test. It's going to be like an aerobic program where you just show up every day, get your heart rate up into the target area, and hold it there for 20 or 30 minutes. What we're doing is taking our brain waves and pulling them down into a target area and holding them there for 20 or 30 minutes. And just like the aerobic program, you're not going to see any results at first and it's going to be full of resistance for you, and it's going to hurt, and you're not going to want to do it, and everything in you is going to want to quit. But if you stay with it long enough, and you start to see the first inklings of change and results, and that spurs you on to keep doing it, and then you find yourself actually looking forward to your workouts, it's the same way with contemplative practice. But that's where the discipline comes in, just continuing to show up. It only works, quote-unquote, over time but only if it's structured for you. It's your structure. It can be anything you want, but you structure it. And then it only works if you're disciplined to the structure. It's also only going to work if you're not thinking about the outcome. This isn't a focus on an outcome. It's about being part of and participating in a transforming process. And the discoveries that you make along the way, But the more focused you are on an outcome or what you want to achieve, the revelation or the illumination that you seek spiritually, the more that that stuff evades you. All that is a byproduct of just showing up to a process. It happens that way. It's not direct. If you focus on it, you're doing the exact opposite of what contemplative practice is about. Just show up without expectation, without any sense of merit, you know, No one's going to see you doing this. You're not going to get a brownie point or a slap on the back. You're just doing this because you want to see if you can become closer to God. It's not about your performance or how well you're doing it. It's not about pride of any sort. Remember, this is not a building up. This is a stripping down. Others are going to notice the differences and the changes in you before you notice it yourself. This happens over and over again. Someone is going to make a comment to you that they're seeing a change that you didn't notice. If you notice a change in yourself, it's usually retrospective. You walk into a situation that would have taken your head off six months ago, and it barely changes your blood pressure, and you realize, wow, that's new. That's kind of cool, you know? Remember what Jesus said? He was talking about giving, but he said don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. It's kind of that way that you're working with yourself. you know? It's like keep the outcome in a place where you don't even know that it's there. Just show up. Wax on, wax off. Don't worry about karate. Just show up to the process. Keep the self-conscious thoughts to an absolute minimum. At the same time, though, you have to have the structure. Set it, be disciplined to it, and then forget it until the next time that the schedule says to show up again, and then show up, rinse and repeat. This isn't about self-development, and this is so difficult for us to understand the way that we are attuned in our culture. We're not developing ourselves, we're not building ourselves up. We're doing the exact opposite. We're tearing down the parts of ourselves that we think are developed, that we think are evolved so that we can let go of all of our judgments, all of our our biases, our attachments, our preferences, and get down so that we can see exactly what is right in front of us. Not about addition. It's not about acquisition. It's not about accomplishment, but stripping all that away, about becoming more humble, more submitted, more vulnerably connected. It works in the exact opposite way. This is the way of the heart that Jesus first taught This is the way of the heart that the desert fathers and mothers rediscovered. This is the way of the heart that Francis of Assisi, 1,200 years later, rediscovered. And everyone in between and since who has followed this way, despite what the church was doing, despite what the world was doing, despite how they came up and what family they came from or where they found themselves in any other category of human life, they were able to find this space, this way of the heart, not the head, and not even the emotion, though both are going to be present. Your thoughts and your emotions will be present, but we're going to move beyond them, back to who we were before our minds took over and made us believe that we were separate from everything and everyone, alone, ashamed, afraid. We're going to move beyond original sin, right? to the original love that casts out any fear of separation. That's what this can do for every one of us. And it's the only thing that can do it, as Jesus said. But it doesn't have to be done formally. It can be done informally. We can all be part of the Brother Lawrence School, where we just do what we do all day long, but we do it with this sense of mindful presence. We do it with this sense of choiceless awareness. We can do that, absolutely. But it takes intention and it takes showing up and it takes structuring even then the day as we live it until it becomes so much a part of us that we don't have to think about that anymore either. That is also possible. So if this sounds at all interesting to you, whether you've already started and want to fine tune it or not, you can come talk to me. But there are materials online. I've done the, the set of videos and the two e-books, and they're on our YouTube channel. You can grab them there, and uh, I can tell you where the link is and all of that. But this whole last few months is about hopefully giving you the what, the why, and the how. You know, What is contemplative practice? Why is it so critically important? Why is it important to you? and how do you do it? And then any help you need along the way is why we're here. So if you're interested, let's talk. Because having someone along the way with you who's maybe a couple of steps ahead can make all the difference in the world. Because I guarantee you, even after a talk like this or even after you read more, you're going to have 100 questions and you get those answered and you get started, you're going to have 100 more. You're going to wonder, am I doing it right? This can't be right. This doesn't feel right. This has got to be wrong. You know, just say, no, oh, it's fine. It's, it's exactly what happens. You know, that can make a huge difference. Avail yourself of everything that is possible to leave no stone unturned to find your way to your best relationship with God and everyone in your life. Let's pray. Father, we want to find you more perfectly. And we know this is the way. Help us again to just put everything aside that would keep us from it, to find the desire and the motivation to push through the resistance and to do everything we can, leave no stone unturned on our way back to you. And thank you for everything that you've given us, Lord. Every one of these teachers, and especially yourself, your presence that guides us most surely if we can tune our awareness to your presence. So, Father, thanks for your love and constancy. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.